both domestically and internationally, in substance and in tone, I'm worried about the state of politics. Words have consequences, and ill words that go unchallenged are the first step on a continuum towards ill deeds. These are people that hate our country. If you're not happy here, then you can leave. As far as I'm concerned, if you hate our country, you can leave. But if you use that kind of language and talk about sending people home, that is racist language. Why won't you or Jeremy Hunt call it out for what it is? I think, I, I think I've made my position use clear. Use the word, use the word. But I'm not going to use the R word. Do you bear any responsibility yourself for some of the corrosive language which you were attacking? I mean, there will be phrases that people will have interpreted in different ways from what was intended. Keep America great. Welcome to another episode of Polarise, the RSA's podcast about the big divides in our politics and culture. I'm Matthew Taylor. And I'm Ian Leslie. What we're going to talk about mainly today is paths to polarisation. I want to explore how three politicians, Theresa May, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, have in different ways been laying a path to polarisation. I want to find out whether Ian agrees with my analysis and I'm sure he'll challenge it, but also I want to explore what we what we might be able to do uh, about any of this. But uh, before we do that, Ian, I haven't seen you for a while. So, no, it's been too long. Uh, uh, the book, tell me about the book. Oh, well, so I'm now in, in the last uh, stage of... Uh, writing the, the, the draft that I will submit to my publisher in September. So, so for those of you that don't know, I'm writing a book about productive disagreement, how to disagree without falling out. So obviously very pertinent to the themes of our podcast. And uh, yeah, I, so I'm in a kind of permanent um, panic mode at the moment as I realise all the gaps that I still need to fill and all the kind of chapters that I still need to reshape and, and I'm looking at the clock ticking down and uh, it's quite scary. So we must have at least a couple of episodes of Polarised about, about your book when you're already in the autumn. Yeah. I but, hope so. Um, on the subject of books, I can't get anyone to publish mine. I've written mine. I've done all the chapters. Huh. I've done the references. I've done everything. No one wants to print it. So I, I've been working with James, our producer, who's sitting here with us silently, like a kind of Buddha. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, judging us. Judging us all the time. We're working on this idea uh, of, a, of a series. When I was discussing it with a colleague the other day, they said you should call it... Um, Something like, why can't, why won't anyone publish my crap book? Which is a bit harsh. But what I'm hoping, well, to, what I'm hoping to do is to to get a publisher to explain why he won't publish it, and then maybe over a series of weeks discuss the book with various people, reading various chapters, trying to explore what I'd have to do to get it published. I'm trying to make success out of total abject and utter failure. Why don't you just call it F- my life? All right, that's a good because, idea. Because you know that's very popular. Uh, you know to have the word, the F word in in titles these days. So they're, 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 I don't know. Well, why won't you publish my, my book? All right, enough swearing. Now, yesterday uh, I was at Theresa May's last substantive speech as Prime Minister at Chatham House, and I would like today to share some personal reflections on the state of politics in our country and around the world. So, I, you know, I I have some sympathy for Theresa May, and I didn't disagree really with. I disagree with almost nothing that she said yesterday. She talked about the need for politics to be based on pragmatism and realism and honesty. She talked about the problems of polarization and opportunism. She talked about some of the perils in the world, both domestically and internationally, in substance and in tone. 
I'm worried about the state of politics. That worry stems from a conviction that... Now, what was interesting, this takes us to our first path to polarisation, is that the people who questioned her, and there were a couple of hostile questions, uh, one from a journalist and one from uh, just a member of the audience, and they both said the same thing to her. And I guess, I, I can imagine you might guess what they said, Ian. What they said was, well, how can you talk about polarisation, the problem of polarisation, when you're the person who used phrases like queue jumpers? You talked about a red, white and blue Brexit. You talked about no deal being better than a, a bad deal. You know, you had the hostile policy for immigration. You're a fine one to talk about polarisation. Words have consequences. And ill words that go unchallenged are the first step on a continuum towards ill deeds. Do you bear any responsibility yourself for some of the corrosive language which you were attacking in your speech? Uh, I'm thinking of attacks on political elites, citizens of nowhere, uh, and maybe glib language like red, white and blue Brexit. When you look back over the three years as Prime Minister, is running through a wheat field still the naughtiest thing you ever did? I have to think, I think one of the silliest things I ever did was answering that question. Uh, when, but, uh, but there we are. On the issue of language, look, uh, has every sort of phrase I used always been as perfect as it should be? No. I mean, there will be phrases that people will have both interpreted in different ways from what was intended. Um, she kind of said, look, yes, there are things I said which maybe they were taken out of context, but, but maybe they were unfortunate as well. You know? So she kind of partly recognised it. So this is our first path to polarisation. And the first path to polarisation is weakness. That uh, Theresa May essentially, uh, both on immigration and some of the rhetoric around immigration and uh, some of the more extreme tactics, and on Brexit, in, a, in particularly the Lancaster House speech, that she didn't feel strong enough to explain to the public that things are complicated, that you have to make the best of the system. She tried to pretend that we could have an immigration system that can kind of stop any foreigners getting here at all. And she tried to pretend that she could achieve a really tough Brexit without problems for the, the, the country. So would you agree that that's Theresa May's fundamental problem, weakness? Yes. Uh, I mean, she's, <laughs> she's got a few <laughs> fundamental problems, but um, weakness, not not really knowing what, what she wanted and then once she knew what she wanted, not being able to communicate it, if the politician in the centre or the politician who's trying to hold the centre is weak and and uh, is sort of a bit all over the place as she was, then that leaves a gap for stronger you know, ideologues to come in and from either side and, and kind of suck the air from, from, from the centre. So I, I think that's a reasonable kind of way to put it. Um, I think she would say, well... She would say, well, you're talking about a few sound bites and, and the odd speech, but look, I've been trying, struggling to get an actual compromise done um, on Brexit over the last year and a half. And but she didn't I've, help herself. Did, she didn't, but, help but herself. But she didn't help herself. She didn't no. help herself. She put the line in the wrong place. Yeah, I agree. And I wonder, you know, because you're a, a, a close observer of kind of human behaviour, but also you think a lot about kind of marketing and communication. I, I wonder whether... If one is doing something not out of sincere, sincere belief, but doing it to pacify one's enemies, to pacify those who are a threat, is one particularly prone to being maladroit, to getting it wrong? So I, I think here, a good example, Gordon Brown. Remember British jobs for British workers? Yeah. And this was clearly not something Gordon Brown believed. Yeah. 
It was something that he said, and it, it, it was a disaster. It just yeah. made him look appalling. So do you think there's a particular issue about politicians when they're weak, kind of saying what they think they ought to say, but because they don't really believe it, they are more likely to get it wrong? Yeah, I do. And I, I think that if your only aim is compromise, then you're probably not going to be good at getting a compromise. You know, you're, you're probably not going to be an effective um, politician. Uh, this is where the kind of uh, uh, the radical critique of centrist politicians does cut through, it, it seems to me, right? So if, if you're, if, if by centrist politician, we, someone whose only belief is, I just want to be in the centre, wherever it is, and I want to find the middle ground on, on every issue, then uh, you're probably going to get nowhere and you're actually probably just going to strengthen the, the, the radicals on, on either side. Centrism in, the, in, a, in a better sense means, you know, let, let's find the, the best possible solution here and then let's kind of um, uh, convince as many of, of as as I can on either side that this is the, this is the right way to go. But basically, having a vision and saying we're going over here, not just saying, well, okay, guys, can't we just kind of find a middle ground here? Uh, that's actually, you know, a, a, a recipe for, well, as you say, a recipe ultimately for polarisation. Well, the point then is, is that if what you're trying to do is position rather than make a substantive argument, yeah. you're more likely to get it wrong. And I wonder whether this is yeah. true of brands. You know, when brands try to, as it were, position themselves rather than talking about what they really are, what they really stand for, what they really believe about themselves, they're more likely to make a communication. I mean, this is a general, yeah, yeah. A general rule that inauthenticity undermines the capacity to communicate. Again and again, actually, in, in, in uh, kind of agency-client conversations, uh, the, the client often... This can be the other way around sometimes, but one party worries that we'll alienate a part of the audience if if we put our flag in the ground too you know too firmly on on this side and say this brand stands for this or this, and you often have to say well uh, unless you, you're slightly worried about alienating something then you're probably not saying anything at all. And the first thing you have to do is is to get noticed and to stand for something and and to to, to be or do something that people care about and, and and notice. So that's why the kind of marmite you know case study. Um, was so uh, influential because it, it was kind of embodied that strategy of saying, well, some people hate us, some people love us, but that's why you know we are what we are, and that, that made us famous. Do you think we underestimate people, Ian? Do you think that had Theresa May said, look, I know you're worried about immigration, we are going to deal with it, but, you know, there'll still be a lot of people coming here because it's the nature of the world, and I'm going to do this the best way I can, but I'm not going to treat people in a way that isn't British. For example, if she'd said on... Brexit. Look, 52% voted one way, 48% voted the other. Therefore, probably the thing we need to do is to find the softest way of doing what the 52% wanted, because you know, this wasn't an overwhelming majority for anything at all. And, and I'm yeah. going to do my very best, rather than drawing the red lines where she drew the red lines. Do, do you think that, that, that there's a tendency for politicians and their advisors to underestimate the public, underestimate the public's capacity to accept and deal with complexity? I do, and also to think. I also think that they're sort of underestimating themselves to, to a certain extent, and that a strong leader, uh, you know, a powerfully persuasive leader, can can take people with them. You know, that's what leadership is about. Leadership is about, is about knowing, first of all, knowing what you want, and then and then second, being able to to communicate it persuasively. Um, and Theresa May just fails on both of those counts you know she's not really known what she she wants on on brexit and she certainly hasn't been able to communicate it eisenhower once wrote people talk about the middle of the road as though it were unacceptable things are not all black and white there have to be compromises the middle of the road is all of the usable surface the extremes right and left 
are in the gutters. I believe that seeking the common ground and being prepared to make compromises in order to make progress does not entail a rejection of our values and convictions by one iota. Rather, it is precisely the way to defend them. Her speech is the kind of thing that gives our uh, sort of anti-polarisation uh, philosophy a bad name. Because <laughs> it's too easy. It's cheap talk. And we, we kind of touched on this already, but but it's it's a very quite an elegantly written kind of speech but it's kind of, it feels kind of empty and i think if you if you're going to say in any kind of form of public discourse a speech or, or on social media or whatever hey we've got to be less polarized we we've, we've got to be nicer to each other we've got to be more reasonable let's you know shun the ideologues on either side you've got to look at yourself mm. first of all and say well, what are you doing about it or what have you done about it because it's not that easy and so yeah. uh, i i've just found it a little no, bit. no i agree with that and i think that the thing that was missing from the speech, which intellectually I had no problem with, was was the lack of emotional intelligence in terms of or self-confidence. I wanted to hear, hear her say more about her own journey. Absolutely. I wanted yeah. her to say, look, I started here and now I realise this. I yeah. did that and now I realise that. Yeah. Um, I mean, Tony was always very good at that. I mean, he did it in a completely, oh, se- he did it completely self-serving way, of course. You know, I always, always, <laughs> always used to say the only time I ever heard Tony say he was wrong was when he said he, he, he hadn't listened to himself. Uh, early enough, you know. So, um, but he would kind of say, "Well, I, you know, I thought this, and now I think that." You yeah. know, I, I, you know, I, I believe this, and now my, my mind has changed. It, as I say, it was self-serving, but there was that sense of a, a journey. It's a mindset, which is, you know, I'm learning all the time. Yeah, we, we're learning together, which which some politicians have, some don't. Now, I, I don't want to spend any much time on Jeremy Corbyn, but but just briefly, because we are talking about kind of figures of polarization. He he seems to be one. He's certainly polarizing the Labour Party. He's probably polarising the British population slightly less than he'd used to because he used to split them, whereas now there's only a pretty small group of people who are still uh, enthusiastic <laughs> yeah. about him. Do, yeah, you a, do, you a, do you have a take on what's what's going on there and, and why it, it's, you know, I mean, it is, it, is, it is remarkable that the Labour Party is in this terrible state at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think their, um, their near victory in 2017 sort of ruined them near victory but you know they came amazingly close and they did amazingly well and and if they hadn't stopped Theresa May from getting a majority you know could have been uh, a much harder Brexit by now although let's see it might, might play out uh, the hardest Brexit possible but anyway um, I, I, I think they were so pleased by, by what happened in 2017 that they kind of got stuck in that moment and everything that they'd done up until then they decided was the, the, the right tactical approach and the right, and the right strategy um, and they didn't see how things uh, were shifting particularly on, right. on, on the Brexit issue and so it's sad they, they, they've just sort of adopted the same tone the same rhetoric the same tactics their relationships with the parliamentary party has been the same if not you know worse they just don't seem to be able to move on and, and develop but that's kind of a characteristic of the leader himself so uh, I guess there's a kind of fourth path to polarisation here, which is kind of delusion or incompetence. But let's not let's not get into that. Donald Trump. Now, you know, <laughs> the thing about Trump is, is that quite. I'm sure I'm not the only person here. You're kind of stuck with Trump, which is that do you succumb to the idea that he is just a monster and interpret everything about him in in those terms, which means you're constantly in a kind of space of hyperbole. And the problem with that is, you know, his his ratings in America are higher than they've been, you know, since he won the election. And so you're you're in a position where you've got absolutely no connection to, you know, a lot of people, I mean not people I know, of course, but people in America who are going to like him. So you think, well, what's the point of just hating somebody? Don't you need to try to understand what's going on here? 
And, and so I, I, te- I, you know, I tend to kind of take the, the second view. I tend to think, well, I, you know, I can't bear him. I, well, you know, I need to try to understand that in some ways his pushback against globalization speaks to people's concerns and et cetera, et cetera. But then there comes a moment when you think, well, no, this is just beyond the pale. Representative Ilhan Omar... You know, watching today, people at a rally, a Trump rally, nearly everybody was the white that I could see, uh, and they're chanting, send them back or send her back. And he's standing there, you know, not attempting to silence it, apparently kind of soaking it up. I mean, this is terrifying. Yeah, um, it's appalling. Uh, It is uh, terrifying. Well, actually, I don't find it terrifying because I actually don't think this is the whole, this is is the country uh, as a whole. But it is vile, and you, you have to say that, right? So, so I, I, I think there's a kind of strain of thinking which is okay. But if if you get upset about this and you call it racist and so on, then you, you're playing into his hands. The funny thing is, this is true, uh, <laughs> and yet at the same time, you can't not say it, right? You have to, you have to call it out, and you have to get angry about it. What's the point otherwise? But. Un, uh, I think it is also true that this is the game that he wants to play, right? This is the game that he has. He is choosing. Um, he would rather the next election were, was a, a big shouting match about racial politics and, and racial identity. Sorry to interrupt you, but that, that, when you go down that route, what it reminds me of is something I thought of a few weeks ago, which is there's a parallel between Donald Trump and uh, a film called Slapshot, which is fantastic. I very strongly recommend it. Paul Newman is a kind of, I think he's got an alcohol problem, he's got an injury, he's, he's a fading ice hockey player. He takes over a truly dreadful team uh, who are losing and hated by their fans. And then uh, a group of three brothers join the team who are kind of real kind of wild guys from the, from, from the kind of rural uh, hinterland. And they're thugs, the three of them, absolute thugs. And basically what happens is the team start winning. And the reason they start winning is because they just play incredibly violent ice hockey. And the film is in a way about Paul Newman's ambivalence, about the fact that his team is now being successful as a result of playing this kind of thuggish way. Now, of course, Trump isn't ambivalent at all. So what I'm hearing is, is that in a sense... Trump's malevolence is that he thinks he's more likely to win the game of politics if the politics, the game of politics is about people beating each other up. Yeah, and, and he's putting all his uh, chips, psychologically speaking, on, on uh, aggression being the route to, to high status rather than likability, right? So this is, these are often presented as kind of two, two routes to achieving uh, high, high status in, in a group. Um, and unfortunately, sadly for our species, you know, aggression is one way to, to get yourself, you know, to the, the, the top of a hierarchy uh, in a group. And more than any other politician in the past, he's kind of doubled down on, on, that, on that side of things. But then, of course, just kind of taking it down a level, it's aggression expressed, ex- expressed explicitly through racial politics and, and, and uh, kind of white identity. And the more that the argument is on that terrain, he thinks, now he might be wrong about this, but he thinks the, the better it is for him uh, because his task, as he sees it at the next uh, uh, the presidential election, is to uh, motivate, mobilise those white working class voters in in uh, uh, kind of mid midwestern states that he uh, took people by surprise by by winning last time. But, so he thinks this yeah. is the way to go. But this must be his preference, mustn't it? Mustn't it? Because you know, actually, his poll rating is quite good. The economy is booming. I've spoken to economists; they think sooner or later the American economy is going to be in trouble. But they think probably 
it won't be in trouble until after the next yeah. presidential election. So, you know, the the route for him to be a bit more soft and gentle and say, look, I'm very successful, you know, the, his policies on China are actually quite popular across the spectrum. But he just, you know, even though the opportunity is is there for him to mature in office and probably be in a very strong position to win next time, particularly if the Democrats go a little bit more radical. But he's just not interested. He just doesn't want to do that. He wants yeah. to fight. At, at every stage, from from winning the nomination uh, to to taking office in the White House to, to now, people have been saying, well, you know, why doesn't he? You know, surely at some point he'll develop uh, or pivot or change. No, no, no. He's just going to be more and more and more him, himself. And 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 that's his his gamble is that this is what won me the the election last time again a little bit a little like Jeremy Corbyn in two thousand seventeen he might be overlearning the lessons of his success you know it's, it's in some ways it's easier to learn from your failures than it is from your successes because when something goes wrong particularly when everybody's been telling you you're going to fail and fall flat on your face and you win against the odds which happened to both those those leaders then the the the, the learning the, the lesson you take away from that is wow my instincts are incredibly good um and you know Perhaps they are, but but uh, he may be overrating them as well. So th- so this strategy he's adopting might might well fail. This, but the other question is that how should Democrats respond to? Well, this? I was going to ask you that. Yeah. I mean, we yeah, we, yeah. we have on this program in the past talked to advisors to key Democrats like like AOC and. How do you fight aggression? Do you fight aggression with equal aggression? Or as they appear to have done, these congressmen try to rise above it slightly. I think that America has always been a story. And America has always been about the triumph of people who fight for everyone versus those who want to preserve rights for just a select few. And there is no bottom to the barrel of vitriol that will be used and weaponized to stifle those who want to advance rights for all people in the United States. And also, it's difficult problem for for the the party as a whole because uh, he wants the Democratic Party to be identified with AOC and her squad. They are uh, incredibly, I mean, AOC in particular has had incredible success at making herself a huge national figure uh, within whatever it is, a a year of, you know, goes from nothing to basically being the face of the Democratic Party to some extent, right, and being very influential. The problem for the Democrats is that she's also very unpopular. You know, she, her, her numbers are like really, really, you know, she's more unpopular than pretty much any other national politician. She's very popular amongst people that, that, that love her. but And so the more that they are identified with her, the bigger a problem it is with, for them. So what does Trump want to do? He wants to make it all about her. He wants, he wants this to be a Trump versus yes. AOC election, you know, no, no matter who the Democratic nominee yes, is. Yes, of course. And so, yeah, absolutely. And... Um, and when you look at the level of support amongst Republicans, you know, 50, 57% of them in a poll say they agree with the tweet that told the congressmen to go back to the countries which they came from. And a third strongly, you know, agree with them. It, you know, it's clear that in America, there is a, it is a kind of, tin, you know, there's, there is a lot of kind of dry tinder there. And, you know, Donald Trump throwing lighted matches onto this is is going to continually set fires, you know. And, and as you say... Part of the strategy is that the Democrats will respond to that. And, you know, the kind of leadership that you would need right now, somebody who was able to rise above this, somebody who was able to speak about national unity in a way that was meaningful and credible, I don't see much sign of it, really. 
But that's, you know, politics is hard. <laughs> they, they've got to find a way of sounding strong um, and, and, and passionate. Voters like to see people standing up to people, right? So, so, so the stronger and more aggressive Trump goes, the, the stronger uh, and more, you know, not necessarily aggressive, actually, but the stronger his, his opponent should be. But, but yeah, it's, it's a tough task. So is that, is that the, the second of your paths to, so to second path is second path is, is malevolence. So the first yeah. path was treason, mate. Well, you know, second path is malevolence. You talked about these two strategies, status strategies, aggression or likability. So let's turn to somebody who's chosen likability, his own form of likability, mm. and that's a Boris Johnson. Yeah. Um, so the third route to polarisation is opportunism. Because you know, in the end, if you want to know what's going to happen in the world, ask the bookmakers, and the bookmakers are making Boris Johnson 25 to 1, which means if you put £25,000 on him, you're only going to win £26,000, so it's not really worth doing. So unless they're wrong, he's going to win. Yeah. Uh, he has already said things. He has already said, it seems to me, quite a lot of things which it, it's hard to see how this isn't going to result in some kind of polarisation. Either he's going to say, well, actually, I, I don't mean any of it, in which case there's going to be even more kind of hostility towards the the elite and the establishment disillusionment, or else he's going to carry some of these things forward, in which case there's going to be even deeper divisions in the country. Do you, do you see a, a, a benign way out of this? <laughs> benign? I don't know. I mean, he's just got to this position despite having... You know, hasn't kind of passed any of the tests that people who rise to this level are supposed to pass, you know, <laughs> like being an effective minister, like, you know, showing competence, like showing um, clear direction and consistency and, and you know, all, all sorts uh, and, and a commitment to truth. So he hasn't done any of those things. And yet and yet here we are. That that depresses me. My only kind of small, slightly bitter consolation is that being prime minister is going to be incredibly painful for him? Um, it's it's in, in a re- I'm actually surprised that so many of them wanted to 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 do it. Although I guess they 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 do it because they they think they don't have to. They can go straight into number ten. They don't have to be in opposition. Um, it, it's an almost impossible job, and I think he is incredibly unsuited to the to the task of being prime minister. You know, well, having right. to take decisions over and over again, as you know better than me, many decisions pass across the prime minister's desk every day and you can't please everyone all the time and for a guy who basically wants to be liked and wants to be popular this is going to be a very very painful time yeah and actually i put my hand up to ask Theresa may a question yesterday she, she didn't she didn't call me and i, I won't hold it against her but i, I was going to say to her it it, it, it is a, as someone who's a former number 10 insider i'm constantly kind of amazed and horrified by the degree to which people taking on that job underestimate the inherent complexity and difficulty of it. You know, Cameron did appallingly. I mean, Brown, you know, you think of them all. You know, Brown said, well, once Blair's gone, we'll have social... Well, no, no disaster. You know, Cameron, oh, it's all going to be very simple and I've got these guys walking around in shorts and we've got the big, big society. You know, yeah, right. no absolute, you know, complete loss of control at the centre, which he never really kind of made up for. Theresa May you know, bringing in her advisers who had been able to kind of lord it in the home office, you know, that kind of level of, that style of control just did not work in number 10 at all. So, yes, he's going to have an awakening. But the other interesting thing in is, is, is the way that people have opposed him. What's interesting about this, like the historians will say, you know, Boris Johnson has wanted to be prime minister and we've all known Boris Johnson wants to be prime minister for, what, 15 years or so, you know, uh, at a high level. And there's been a, a deep concern in the establishment, including people who are reasonably close to him, about whether or not he's up for it. But it's just happened. It's just unfolded. This and, is what I mean. And, yeah. and, and you know, and um, Jeremy Hunt's a good example of this. I mean, Jeremy Hunt 
clearly was conflicted. Should he try to outdo Boris or should he try to expose Boris? He's ended up trying to do both and... Badly. Badly. And that's a completely incoherent position. And you see other politicians like Amber Rudd. She's gone flip-flop on Brexit, presumably because she thinks that it's her duty to be inside the tent and trying to persuade him to be reasonable rather than outside the tent and be completely irrelevant. But nobody really get it... No one's really getting it right in the kind of managing Boris stakes, are they? I'm not sure anybody's getting much right you know, <laughs> uh, across the board at the moment. Um, what do you think he's going to do in terms of, uh, what do you think the first uh, 10 days and, and the first uh, three months are going to hold? Do you think he's going to call an election straight away or, or what do you think he's going to do first? So I'll give you the three scenarios and then you can uh, you can tell me what you think they are in order of probability. Mm-hmm. and. So scenario one, which is the benign scenario that I, you know, I, I, no, I, won't, I won't tell you what I think. Uh, the benign scenario is that he comes in, he goes to Europe, says, I want a better deal. They say no. He comes to Parliament, says, OK, no deal. They say no. He says, well, OK, I think we need a, a hard exit. I'm going to the uh, have a second referendum and say to the people, look, you know, let's vote for this. It's an ultimatum. Vote for this ultimatum to European Union, knowing that if they don't... A referendum? It, yeah, if, wow. they don't, if they don't accede to it. And he, Boris Johnson, says... Uh, although I want you to vote leave, I'm not going to get involved in this because I don't want to be in a position that David Cameron was in, which is that I can't continue to run the country whatever the outcome is. I used to believe that might be possible. I thought Boris could get away with it. Right? That Boris would be believed by... He would have credibility amongst Brexiteers in calling a second referendum and saying this is the only route to the Brexit you want. Okay, That's scenario one. Scenario two, which I've heard from people who are much closer to him and to the action, is that... He basically comes in, he rewrites the political declaration in order that it's absolutely clear that this is not no customs union, no Norway. In a way, this is a kind of managed no deal. And that he he probably has the votes to get this through. The ERG will line up behind it. There are, what, 10 Labour MPs who will probably support it, which will kind of deal with the very hardcore Tories who won't. Gets that through, then calls the general election on uh, as the man who delivered Brexit you know, perhaps as quickly as he can in order to avoid people's starting to notice the effects of it. (laughs) And then the third scenario is that he comes into office, he calls a general election immediately, he does a deal with Nigel Farage, Nigel Farage says, I trust this man, and therefore I'm not standing Brexit candidates. And so he he has a general election saying, give me the the support I need for um, an ultimatum or no deal has a general election, which he would probably, on the current polling, win by an enormous amount because Labour and Liberal Democrats are completely split and I don't think Jeremy Corbyn's going to do a deal with the Liberal Democrats. So he only needs about 36%, which is way below the kind of Brexit number, to get a a whacking majority. He does that, gets that majority. Farage has some kind of role going forward. I mean, and and don't forget, Farage himself has to move from just being Brexit. He needs a broader right-wing populist canvas. So this is the kind of full Bannon Scenario. So those are the scenarios, kind of early general election, full Bannon, uh, gets a hard Brexit through and calls an election on the back of that, or goes to a referendum on the basis that he would be a figure who would be trusted by the Brexiteers to do that. So, Ian, wow. I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> I mean, what do you think of those are most likely? You might have, um, feel free to have a fourth scenario. No, I mean, I, I, I just um, have no idea. Um, <laughs> the, the, just a couple of things, though. That's the, quite interesting, isn't it? We have a prime yeah. minister start taking off his next we, week. We just and don't we know. Have we just no don't know. Idea. And all of the, uh, the scenarios you outline seem unlikely. You know, every it's one of those situations. Everything is unlikely. 
but something has to happen. So, uh, yeah, Nigel Farage, by the way, I think um, his route to uh, to greater power, indeed, maybe to number ten at one point, at some point, is for Brexit not to happen. So I, I think it's, he doesn't actually have an incentive to see a Brexit deal. So you think his through. ambition is to be a, a, actually to take over? Not you don't well, think he? I get the sense he, he quite. He, I get the sense he kind of craves respectability and therefore being in the kind of cabinet mm, and no, I, saying I I've know. moved the Conservative Party sufficiently far now that I'm happy to be part of it. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, on the other hand, maybe he just sees the opportunity to build a truly mass really change politics forever um, and, and make the Brexit party uh, bigger than the, the, the Tory party. And the way to do that is for Brexit not to happen so that he can build a kind of national humiliation story and, and uh, you know, let's save democracy story, which he's already started to do. There, there is no more powerful motivation than that. Um, so, so, you know, he's got a, you know, if Brexit doesn't happen, he's got a, he's got a very powerful story to tell. Nigel Farage Thank you, Donald, and good evening, everybody. I want to talk about trust. You see, when Prime Ministers, politicians tell you they're prepared to countenance or even deliver Brexit with no deal, do they actually mean it? Do you believe our leaders when they tell us that they're going to deliver a no-deal Brexit if they have to? And if you do believe them, and if you think, yep, Boris, absolutely no question, he's going to do it, call 0345 This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. Ian, that's, I think, a brilliant way of kind of caricaturing the world we live in now, which is that, which is that nothing seems likely, but something's going to happen. And, uh, and that's the world we kind of live in. But on that point... James, our producer, who, as I say, sits here, Buddha-like in his wisdom and judgment, uh, has passed you, I think, and this isn't fair, because he didn't tell me he was going to do it, and he does actually work for me, so I could just sack him for this uh, impotence, but he has passed you a list of the predictions that I made about what was going to happen in politics back in March, I think. Just so that I can be proven wrong, here's a set of predictions for the next uh, few months um, of politics and anyone who does a football accumulator let me explain the concept to you which is i'm going to describe a set of things that i think individually are more likely than not but of course if you multiply lots of those things you end up with something that's unlikely so ultimately what i'm describing is unlikely although individual bits i think are likely so number one Theresa may will get her deal through number two pretty soon after that she'll be told to to leave uh, number three, we'll then have a, a fight in the Conservative Party, primarily between a kind of ERG Canada-type candidate and a more establishment Norway-type candidate. Uh, I suspect Michael Gove, who I think has played a very canny political hand, uh, might come through the middle. Uh, Vince Cable will stand down, uh, will be replaced probably by Joe Swinson, young, female. At that point, Joe Swinson might, in her declaration or during her campaign, so say, look, I really want an arrangement with these TIG people. Let's have some kind of electoral pact. At that point, they could attract a lot more MPs. And at that point, we end up with three parties, a socialist Labour Party, a progressive centre party, and a Conservative Party. And British politics, by the autumn of this year, is fundamentally realigned. Do I think that's likely? No. But each individual step, I think, is quite likely. 
Well, let's, let's go through them. Brexit deal passes. Oh, thumbs down. Right. Okay. Um, Prime Minister resigns. Out of one. Prime Minister resigns. Oh, good. One out of two. You've got that. Gove wins leadership. One out of three. Cable replaced by Swinson. I mean, you're looking pretty good for that. Two out. Well, we don't know. We don't know. But but okay. But one. Yeah. Okay. It's looking good. Um, I'll have that one. Electoral pact between Lib Dems and the the independent group. We don't. The independent group don't really exist. And there'll be a three party system in British politics. Yeah. No, I think two out of five is is it's not well, good, really, is it? I, I, in so these circumstances, that? that might actually be quite good. Why did yeah. I why did I get it wrong? I mean, I think we all overestimated the independent group. We all thought they would they, that something more would happen in the middle than that, and and yeah. it hasn't. And I think that's the Tom Watson conundrum, which we've talked about in the past, which is that Tom Watson clearly wants to be involved in a kind of realignment. And I think one yeah. of the things that are, that is being discussed, as I understand it, is that if my kind of Bannon scenario, if the Johnson-Farage deal to, to have a very hard Brexit and a general election comes through, then I don't think Jeremy Corbyn will, will, will agree to a kind of electoral pact. But it could be that Watson or someone else in the Labour Party just declares independence and says, look, I'm sorry, we've got to stop this and I'm going to tell you how, you know, and I will tell you how to vote. And in these 70 seats, you shouldn't vote Labour, you should vote for Liberal Democrats and the, and the Liberal Democrats. Right. I mean, I don't know, but I, I, I hear that's kind of in the ether, but um, yeah. uh, but, but we'll see. But I, I, in, uh, I think what that list tells you a bit is about wish fulfillment, is that I, you know, because I'm in the centre, I kind of assume something something's going to happen in the centre. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah, yeah. thinking West Bromwich yeah, Albion Alb- Alb- will score a late goal, but, you, you know, similarly for yeah. Lorne. The, the, I, I think he'll call an election. Um, Straight away. Yeah. Although I go back and forth. On, I, I, I'm not sure he's a great... He doesn't want a minority he's administration, He's not a great decision he? maker. He doesn't want a minority administration, does he? He can't be bothered with the, no, I mean, with it's the wear be and tear of winning a majority on yeah. any vote. I mean, because it's not just Brexit. If, you don't, if you've only got a minority, you've got to spend a lot of time with MPs you don't particularly like, yeah. trying to persuade them that you really think they're fantastic and they might be a minister in the future in order to get them to vote for you. And I don't think he's got the patience for that, has he? Uh, well, and also, well, yeah. He, he might calculate that, that even if I lose, I can, I can keep my... I can still be leader, and there'll be another one along soon. You know, if if you if you think actually British politics is in such a volatile state that there's likely to be more than one election in the next three to five years, then you might feasibly think more than one step ahead and say, well, okay, we'll, we'll have a go at this one. If I win, it's amazing. You know, if I don't, it's okay. I'll stick around till Jeremy Corbyn collapses. Um, the I think there'll be a lot of pressure on him. From um, Cros- Crosby and Crosby Textor, uh, the firm, because just they want Linton to re- Crosby, they the want to Linton Crosby because they want to restore their professional reputation. They were humiliated and along with Theresa May by yeah. by, by 2017. So I think they'll be whispering in his ear every day, "You've got this. You know, we can take this. We can destroy Corbyn." Um, so uh, I think he'll be pumped up, full of kind of uh, uh, confidence that, that that he can win. Yeah, no, I, I, it seems to be the argument for an early election is, is overwhelming because, as I say, I don't think that Boris Johnson's going to have to do the work that's associated with being in minority administration. And I think that the, the fear for the Conservatives is that Jeremy Corbyn might fall under a bus or be pushed under a bus, and then they, the, the situation changes then because it's difficult to imagine a Labour leader who's going to be more unpopular in, in, and ineffective than Jeremy Corbyn. I'll just end with this. I, I make another admission here. This is the Mac podcast. You can be quite open, can't you? <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether this is entirely a bad thing. Perhaps probably is. Most people say it is. But, you know, I have a respect for the office of Prime Minister. So Andrew Adonis 
tweeted yesterday. I tweeted that I was at the Theresa May speech and I said, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing the speech. I hope she doesn't hold back. And Andrew Adonis tweeted, well, why on earth are you there? And I went back to him and I said, well, because I kind of respect the office of prime minister, actually. So there's a little psychological thing that I'm going to observe in the next couple of weeks, which is when Boris Johnson does become prime minister, does my attitude to him in some way slightly change? Because then he is prime minister. And I do have respect for the authority of the office of, of, of prime minister. So I will, I'll find out. And, and I guess I'm a microcosm of how the whole nation is going to respond to this figure who has been in the establishment, but anti-establishment. And now he's that anti-establishment position it's, it's going to be harder to sustain. I guess Trump has been able to do it. So, so yeah. I, I'll be interested to see what journey I go on. Yeah. Anyway, ending on that rather narcissistic uh, re- reference <laughs> to me being interested in my own psychological journeys, as if that was a surprise to any listener. That's it for this episode of Polarized. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell somebody about it. And we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or a review in your podcast app. Polarized was presented by Matthew Taylor and Ian Leslie. The producer was James Shield, and we were brought to you by the RSA.